Okay, Jeff, good to be back in the seat with you. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Angie. Such a pleasure to be back here with you. So I um, was sort of overwhelmed by the number of responses we got from listeners and talentism coaches when we asked for questions. Um, We will be continuing today the experiment we started last week, um, which is prompting you with questions directly from our audience. So if you're ready for it, let's get started. Love it. Let's go. Okay, so today's theme is around something that we at Talentism call speed of change. Speed of change is something that we examine, uh, unearth when we get to know an organization. And in particular, we're interested in understanding if there's alignment across people at an organization on speed of change and the implications of that speed of change. Can you start before we jump into our questions by just telling us What does speed of change mean? Yeah, so I love this question. Um, You you told me last week that we were going to be talking about this, and all weekend long, I couldn't think of anything else. I love this question. I've loved it for a long time. So just take a a walk down memory lane. It was 1997. I co-founded a company called Euphorion, eventually called Euphorion, with Dr. Mitch Weil. And uh, we developed some software that was going to enable people to rapidly prototype websites. Um, And so we wanted consultants in this sort of burgeoning internet industry to have new tools, new methods, to be able to rapidly prototype and experiment with websites. And uh, so we were trying to think through, what is the business problem we're solving and how do we go to market with that? And I started working with this gentleman named Dr. or Mr. Bud Heiler and Bud, and I were talking one day and I said, I really, I really think actually the, the fundamental challenge of business is a speed of change problem. And we had a series of conversations on that. And I started playing around with this hypothesis. It was 1998. Started playing around with this hypothesis. And the, and the hypothesis was the following. The practical speed limit of productive change is equal to the practical speed limit of productive learning. And a corollary to that was the speed, the practical speed limit of productive learning is fundamentally a psychological challenge, not an educational challenge. And a lot of what talentism does today sort of started in that those conversations, because in essence, what I was trying to explore was why do some organizations, again, why do some organizations succeed and some fail? And why do some people succeed and some fail? And then they succeed and fail in different contexts and different times, et cetera. And, and this was around a time when there was this super cool new company coming up called Amazon. And I started ordering from Amazon in 97. So that was, you know, just around the end of its first year, full year of operation. And back then, Amazon just sold books and it was this huge sort of clunky website filled with book titles. And then you'd order the books and a while later, you know, let's say a week, I don't know, a week and a half, you get this sort of like hastily wrapped package and and you'd get a book and it was super, super cool. And, And so like, if you think of where Amazon was then versus where Amazon is now, not just with regards to um, the products that they, the products they offer, but their business structure, all the different elements of it. But even the, you know, another thing we'll talk about later is standards, like the standards and expectations they set with their customers. 
it, it was just a very, very different time. And I would maintain that one of the things Amazon has done really well is they've just evolved faster than the competition. Um, and so this thing of how do companies not only capture um, competitive advantage, keep competitive advantage, to me is very much a speed of change thing. How rapidly can you evolve with or ahead of the market? And how rapidly can you keep customers with you as you're doing that? Uh, and so I started calling these things speed of change. And then when talentism started, you know, nine years ago, even after many, many years of thinking through this, again, this was the core sort of thing that I was fascinated with is how fast do organizations change or how fast can they change productively? Now, organizations can change very rapidly, uh, unproductively. Uh, bankruptcy uh, would be a, a catastrophic, sudden change that is relatively unproductive. But what I was seeking to understand is positive evolution or the evolution of moving forward, not only growing your revenue, not only growing the size of the company, the employee base, et cetera, but also really wanting to understand um, you know, product services, how fast you come to market with those things, and how fast human beings can absorb that uh, and drive that. And to me, as I said, that was fundamentally a psychological issue, not an educational issue. In other words, you could design it as well as you wanted, and you could, you could educate everybody and give them training and everything, and yet there is something underlying human beings that would make that difficult, high-speed, unpredictable um, speed changes difficult for human beings. So getting back to our concept of confusion, which we've been talking about, speed of change, the speed of change and standards are two fundamental drivers of human confusion. And if you don't address it well and make it productive and make that, that confusion into clarity, make it productive confusion, um, then it really slows down the organization and can, and can lead to organizations that fail. I think that was a super helpful introduction. Let me pull out some of the points that I heard that I think are important to emphasize as, as we follow along with this idea of speed of change. So first of all, why do we look at speed of change? I'm hearing you say because um, it's it's one of the uh, predictors of, in fact, it's causally related to whether or not an organization is going to be able to win, whether it's going to be able to create and sustain competitive advantage. Because what is speed of change? Well, it's it's how fast you can take an organization from zero to one, right? From not existing to existing. Um, conceive of new offerings to bring to market. Actually bring those offerings to market. Evolve those offerings based on what you're seeing as a response from your market. So speed of change, we look at it not because it's fun to measure from an academic perspective, because it's directly causally related to whether organizations win. Then the second thing that I heard you say is that the practical limiter on speed of change, now this is interesting, is speed of learning. And that speed of learning is not just about how quickly you can assimilate new information, consume books, etc., but that the limiter on speed of learning is actually psychological. So I think this is an interesting bridge to where we're about to head next, which is a question around why we think of speed of change and related that, the standards that an organization can meet as being elements of its culture. Why is this the domain of culture? 
And I think you were about to tell us, Jeff, how speed of change can be really confusing in an organization. So let's let's head in that direction. Great. So when we talk about culture, what we're talking about is the beliefs, and by that we mean unconscious beliefs, not what we believe about ourselves, but the, the mental models that are animating and driving us, creating the world around us, filtering information, the beliefs people have about the behaviors and standards that will be rewarded, punished, and accepted. And so all of us are walking around all the time with a operating system in our head, and that operating system is a bunch of heuristics and genetic capabilities, but heuristics that enable us to forecast the world and and, and do the things in the world we want to do, achieve goals. Um, and that operating system is has a lot of elements to it, but one of the big parts of that operating system is culture. Again, these beliefs we have about how others will react to us. What are the things that I can do? What are the things I can produce? Um, what are the behaviors I can exhibit that will be accepted? The behaviors um, that can will be punished. Uh, you know, we'll talk about that for a second. And the behaviors that will be um, rewarded. All human beings have fundamental drivers to the, to, of psychological need. We all have things that we deeply care about. We're social creatures. So we care about membership. We care about belonging. We're also, uh, we also have a need for hierarchy and the need to understand our place in the world. And so we have a need for status and respect. And we also need to protect ourselves. We need, um, we need to ensure that we can be clothed and fed and sheltered and free from harm and injury so that we can, uh, so that we can accomplish our basic biological imperatives, which are survival, thriving and, um, taking care of offspring and producing offspring. Those are basic biological imperatives we've talked about before. So all human beings have these sort of triggers in their head, both reward triggers and threat triggers in their head in different ways based on different things. Like we've talked a lot. I don't have much of a membership trigger in most cases, but I have a huge status trigger. And other people, that would be very different, right? The proportions would be different, et cetera. But we all have these needs. We have these rewards uh, that we, we are seeking. We have these threats that we're avoiding. Um, and then in the midst of that, we are in a group of people that are looking at us and judging us all the time based on how we're behaving and the outcomes we produce. And that would be behaviors and standards. And so in culture, one of the elements is if I am changing fast, if I'm exhibiting new behaviors, higher standards, changing my expectations out of sync with the group, then there becomes this inherent confusion in the group. So again, two things that really fundamentally, I think if you, if you, uh, let's say like this is a lens you can put on a lot of things. I think it's a lens that's, that's useful through um, human history, going from when we didn't have written language basically had oral tradition, loose affiliations, no agriculture, et cetera, to where we are today, which is radically different in every respect. If you took a look at that, a thing that actually 
starts to get groups out of sync with each other is different standards, different beliefs about who should be treated how, and different, um, and different expectations with regards to speed of change. Uh, Thomas Friedman wrote a famous book called The Lexus and the Olive Tree many, many years ago. Uh, and I thought that described it pretty well, like what, what was happening in the world writ large with regards to globalization and how some populations were really accepting of that and some populations were very resistant of that. Globalization was just a sort of meta change that was happening in the world. It changed um, our affiliation and our identity. The nation state is another concept that's done that. We've had this throughout history. So that's the big concept. But inside companies, this happens all the time. We, If, um, if you go to In-N-Out Burger, you expect the exact thing you got at In-N-Out Burger. By the way, if, if you don't know In-N-Out Burger, treat yourself and fly to a state where there is one. But if you fly, but if you go to In-N-Out Burger, that menu has not fundamentally changed in the last 20 years, except maybe hot chocolate, I think. Like that menu has always been the same. And that is something that people expect of that. If you showed up at In-N-Out Burger and they said, Hey, listen, would you like to try our new chicken, chicken parmesan cutlet? People would like probably revolt. They'd go, what the hell? Because psychologically, we have an expectation of the sameness and consistency of that thing. Same thing happens inside of organizations. As organizations get larger, they get harder to turn, harder to manage, harder to uh, innovate within. People get very sclerotic, very ex they expect the same thing again and again. And then when the organization starts to fail because it hasn't kept pace with the speed of change in the market overall or in the world they're competing in, then that dissonance between trying to protect what has been from the um, from the world and how the world is evolving, that challenge starts to explode forth in lots of ways and ultimately leads co um, companies to have to make radical shifts in strategy, um, staffing, all sorts of things in order to try to, to, to deal with that and stay relevant. So it's, a, it's just a big theme in human history, but it also happens in all of our organizations. And what you know about startups, because they have less to lose, they have more to gain, they have a fewer, fewer people, um, and they're usually early in a marketplace. They're like working with early adopters, not laggards. Then they can move really fast. They can break things. You know, that old Facebook aphorism, move fast and break things. Um, that, that behavior will be rewarded. Um, the concept of hyperscale is if you don't, if you're not embarrassed by your demo, then you probably, you ship too late. Well, the concept of that is like make stuff that has pretty low standards, but that meets the minimum viable product requirement. These are all concepts of how we enable ourselves to move faster, to have lower standards, not just be seeking to achieve excellence, but just be able to um, move ahead or create the market we're trying to create, speed of change, what drives that. But then as it starts to get bigger and the trade-offs of acquiring the new thing versus protecting the old, as those trade-offs become more fraught, more complicated, then you see people really struggle with the speed of change concept. So something uh, implicit in what you said is actually related to our next listener question, which is, is there always a trade-off between speed and quality? So if speed of change is going up, are standards always going down? No. 
but but absent mastery, speed almost always has a trade-off. So here's what I mean. If you if if an organization gains a level of mastery or an individual gains a level of mastery in a specific function or discipline or service or product, then they can both be very fast and very high quality. Now, quality means fit to spec. Just to be clear, quality is one of those words that often gets used a lot but not well understood. Another one of my my topics I love is the concept of quality and how that came about. That concept came about in the 50s, post-war, all that stuff. I'm not going to geek out on that right now. But by quality, I don't mean good or bad. I don't mean like high-quality stuff is good and low-quality stuff is bad. What I mean is that we say we're going to do something and we do it. And we do it at or above the level we committed to. And when you take a look, again, going back to Amazon, um, Amazon has gotten so good at quality and so good at speed. I don't even really think about Amazon anymore. Like I've my dog food gets delivered Wednesdays by noon and like it always happens. Or if I go online and I go to Amazon and I say, oh my gosh, I, I just ran out of batteries and I'm in desperate need of batteries. It used to be I would have to go down to the store or wait a week for this thing to show up in the mail. Now in certain metro areas, I don't have to make that trade-off. I will get same day's service, much broader um, selection than I would in a store if I went to a store. And all I'm doing is like spending a couple of hours waiting as opposed to spending, you know, 30 minutes waiting. So the trade-off between speed and quality doesn't need to exist. But what we can say is that it takes a lot of practice and a lot of work to get to that spot. So again, going back to my early Amazon example, when I first ordered an Amazon book, they did not deliver that overnight. That took a long time. And there wasn't really many updates about when it was going to get there. There was sort of like, okay, this book isn't really crucial to me. If it was, I'd go to Barnes & Noble. If I needed a book in the next week, I'd go to Barnes & Noble. If I'm sort of curious, I'll go browse on Amazon and it'll get here when it gets here. To get from where they were then to where they are now takes a huge investment in management discipline, leadership focus, and execution. Uh, And so what happens in the beginning in startups, in my opinion, is there there is this belief that there's this trade-off between speed and quality because they actually don't prioritize or care about learning into quality. It's a management question. In other words, like as long as they acquire enough users and keep making this thing sort of sticky, the fact that there's big underlying problems with it isn't their biggest concern. And so they say, so, so in that operating system and thinking like that, yeah, there's an inevitable trade off between speed and quality. Also, the way we think about, um, the way we think about running businesses is inherent, makes that and a trade-off inherent. So at at Talentism, in our Talentism operating system, what we talk about is build-run. And we talk about how do you do a little thing and do it just well enough to be able to deploy it and learn from it so that then you can keep getting, so you can keep evolving. 
And that evolution is happening in, on multiple vectors, but two of them are multiple dimensions, but two of them are the speed at which you are learning and the speed and the quality of the thing you're doing, the complexity of it, the rigor of the spec, the dimensions of everything you're delivering and the dependability and reliability of that delivery. And so we think there's a methodology and we not only think it, we live it and we deploy it at our clients. We think there's a methodology to not to to lessen the trade-off between speed and quality. Um, but the average management operating system doesn't uh, function that way. And so necessarily forces a trade-off between those two things because it doesn't understand how to do little things fast, learn from them, redeploy, iterate quickly, learn constructively and productively, and keep building along both this uh, the path of speed and the path of quality. You know, there's some nuance in what you're saying, Jeff, that I really want to call out. Um, I think it's so important. Implicit in the mindset I encounter in so many of my clients who are growth stage CEOs is that today I have to focus on speed and a time will come when my organization will be more mature. And that's when we'll transition to focus on reliability, quality, whatever is the, the metric that represents um, uh, sort of, sort of a, a, a heightening of standards. And so it's almost like there's an act one and an act two. And inevitably in that act two, there's a ton of pain. <laughs> there's a massive amount of debt if there even is the opportunity for an act two. And so I think what I hear you saying is even during that act one, where speed of getting the organization from not existing or nascent to existing and getting something to market, that in order to benefit from that period and not create debt, there needs to be some way that even as you're being scrappy and in fact crappy in your offering, that you are using that period of time to learn. That the learning and service of improvement of the quality bar has to happen even in the period of frenetic deployment. Am I hearing that right? Yes. So, so it is either true that inherently you can only do one thing well, and so in the beginning, you're just going to move fast, break things. And if you get a breakthrough at product or, you know, market or whatever, then eventually you can go fix what you broke. Or that is just a limitation in your thinking. So it's either a law of physics, like scientifically it just can't be broken, or it's a limitation of the thinking. And I've just raised one example, and I think there are many others that prove it is just a limitation in thinking. Amazon didn't make that trade-off and it won big. Salesforce didn't make that trade-off and it won big. There are companies that have figured out how not to make that trade-off. And in not making that trade-off, which again, I think is a leadership and management challenge, not a inherent in the world sort of thing. Um, and in that management and leadership challenge, they use culture as their primary tool. They have methodologies and they have culture, and those two things enable them to learn through doing and get better faster along both the dimensions of speed and quality. 
What I will say is the concept of hyperscale and everything that has occurred around that, which is a primary driver. When I talk to my clients and they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. I got it. Like, it's okay that I'm building all this structural debt. It's okay. And, and so I'll talk a little bit about structural debt, but it's okay that I'm doing that because as long as I grow fast, I will get to the point where I can fix that. You hear that. All our coaches hear that. Um, that was only true occasionally, you know, most startups fail. And that was only true in an era of relatively cheap capital, low interest rate environment. Because fundamentally what was happening is the structural debt that was being accumulated was going to be fixed on the later late stage investor or public investor dime. It wasn't going to be fixed on the early investor dime. And so it's important to, it's important to see this. So the way I've often described it to the CEOs I talk about is they feel like they're on a very steep ski slope and they've got to get down that mountain as fast as possible. And they don't have time to sort of stand at the top of the mountain and chart the course. And they definitely don't have time as they're skiing down that mountain to figure out whether they're going the right direction or not. They just got to get to the bottom fast. And so they just start skiing fast. They ignore all the risks. And one of the risks is a risk of the avalanche. They hit a spot that sort of unleashes a lot of, a lot of shit that just ends up trailing behind them. And that accumulates and accumulates and gets bigger and faster. And as long as you're skiing faster than that wall of problems that's coming behind you, you're going to be okay. But if you stumble, if you go down, this thing's going to kill you. Um, and the wall of the avalanche that I'm talking about are debts that get accumulated through the business practices and management practices uh, that exist in our mind today. And so, for instance, there's human capital debt. We don't hire the right people. We don't deal effectively with the fact that we failed to hire the right people or we hire the right people, but then we manage them terribly. We don't give them clarity with regards to our goals, their resources, their responsibilities, how things are supposed to work. Why would I possibly prioritize all of that? We just have to go, go, go. Well, then people start acting confused. They start producing bad results. I'm going too fast. I, the leader, I'm going too fast. I can't fix all that. You hire more people. So again, you're starting to consume more and more resources. This is where we see a lot of overhiring. We see um, bloated organizations. We see like weird designs inside of the startups we work with, where we got three organizations working on the same thing. All of that can only happen as long as you've got money to burn because each of those resources requires capital in order to be at your company. There's technology debt. Pretty early on, most of the companies I work with realize that they have an infrastructure that will not scale, that will not take them to the promised land. They've missed critical architectural elements, key critical feature functions. And what do they do? It would be so much easier earlier to try to pursue a different path, rebuild, re-architect, whatever. I don't have time. I just don't have time. So they keep kludging and they keep patching and this wall of things, uh, uh, problems are dragging behind them, gets bigger and bigger. And at a certain point, can't sign on new customers, 
can't take on new markets, can't activate M&A, got no integration path, and then you've got to rebuild. And that rebuild is at a much more fraught time for the organization. Again, it's later later stage. It's much more expensive. There's a number of different elements. It's not just human capital, technological. There's legal. There's um, there's various infrastructure debts. We accumulate these debts because we believe that the only way to get down the mountain fast enough is to ski like hell in a straight line and hope we don't fall. And that is that belief working has been enabled by cheap capital. But if you measure the speed down the mountain by how fast it takes from the top to the bottom, and you look at it in the uh, against the probability you will get to the bottom, as opposed to, I don't care about probabilities. The probabilities are low anyway, so I don't care. So, but you put that lens of like, what's the probability I'm going to get to the bottom? Then you understand that learning as you're skiing down the mountain is a higher probability fast approach than going in a straight line and hoping you don't get overwhelmed by the thing that's trailing behind you. I think as a... um as as someone who has been in the early days of building a startup, I have two sensations listening to you. Um, what you are what you are describing as a perceived law of physics that is actually a mindset. It's a it's a hard thing for me to grasp. Um, it's a hard thing for me to accept. And I wonder if there are others who are listening who say, Jeff, yeah, that's all well and good, but I'm sitting in the seat right now and it's literally a question of time and money. <laughs> I, have a, I have a burn rate. I have uh, this many months before I got to go out and raise. I have to be able to demonstrate certain metrics in order to be able to have a successful raise. And so I can't slow down and build more sustainably now or rebuild now or sort out my hiring issues now or sort out my tech sustainability issues now. Um, because I, the, because then I won't exist. There won't be a tomorrow for which to build those things. I wonder how you would talk to the person who's sitting here listening to you going, that's all well and good hypothetically, but it doesn't apply to me. I'd say you're scared. So what I'm trying to do here is describe something that's, I think, fundamentally ancient wisdom. It isn't a new thought. It's been sort of um, endemic in lots of cultures and lots of spiritual practices, et cetera, for thousands upon thousands of years. And that is um, especially encapsulated in a lot of Eastern principles and religions, which is, you know, go, sla- go slow to go fast. And, I, and what you, what the person who's saying that to me, and I understand, I understand why, I have frequently found myself in the same situation. I completely um, empathize. I have compassion for it. But that is a fear. Uh, that is a rea- fear reaction. In other words, what I would expect the reaction to be of someone who's in curiosity is to be, that's interesting. I've never done that before. How would you do that? That to me is a seeking to turn confusion into clarity. I agree. Most people respond to like, you're nuts. I can't do that. The problem, uh, there's two problems. First of all, yes, you've probably built yourself into a very difficult situation 
because again, to go back to prior podcasts, you've created an, a system around you that is driving you. So the system in this case is I've signed, I've um, taken partnership with venture capitalists who have, or, or investors who have a vested interest in me burning through their cash. So I, I've set up a lot of stuff that's broken. I've set up like my organization has too many people in it. We're not designed for people. We're not unleashing their potential. We got a lot of people double doing stuff. We got some things that are critical that nobody's doing, even though we're overstaffed. There's just a bunch of stuff that's going wrong here. And that was okay in the prior environment. It's not okay now, but the, but my investors are still driving me in a certain way. And so, that system is now driving that fear. I have employees, like I actually have to address their needs and concerns. They're a key constituent. They're a key stakeholder group that drives fear. So I understand that once you build this system that prioritizes high failure speed, that yeah, um, you're, you're, it's going to feel really terrible. And in the midst of that, what you're going to want to do is say, no, no, Jeff, you don't understand. This is a law of physics problem. You, you just don't get it. But the probability is that having worked with hundreds upon hundreds of companies and talentism, hundreds upon hundreds of companies, thousands of leaders, tens of thousands of use cases and trying to work through these problems, uh, the probability is that I'm not missing something. <clears throat> I'm not trying to say that it's easy. I am trying to refer back to that basic corollary I talked about in the beginning, which is like, this is a psychological issue. This isn't a learning issue, an information gathering or knowledge acquisition problem. You feel stuck and you feel stuck in that like, there is only one known path to success here. And that just isn't true. That just isn't true. It doesn't pass any logic test. It doesn't pass any sniff test. It doesn't pass the common sense test. That's not to diminish in any way how difficult it is to be trapped in our own thinking, to be trapped in a prison of our own thinking and to say, like, because I can't see it, because I can't feel it, it doesn't exist. But the organization that has a leader who's willing to stay in the confusion, not go to that certainty, and ask the questions of people who are there to help them about how do I turn this into clarity, can see that they are making lots of decisions day in and day out, which are suboptimal, even given their like, I got to go fast hypothesis. There was an old commercial, when I was growing up, there was an old commercial which was uh, Amco Transmissions. Yeah, it was Amco Transmissions. And it was like, you could either see me now or you can see me later. That was their tagline. And I loved that as a little kid because basically it was like, look, you can either do a checkup on your transmission now or you can have your car in the shop for three weeks getting your um, transmission replaced. And having gone through the health crises I've gone through, man, I live that every day. Every day is a decision between investing in a future that may never come versus prioritizing for today and definitely diminishing the probability that any good future is going to come. Um, and so I understand from a human perspective, we are not wired to have this be an easy problem. 
But if you are in fear, you are blind. And if you are blind, then you're just going to go to the rule set that is most convenient and feels most, most validated to you. Even if, like a lemming, that's going to lead you right off a cliff. So I think the thing that I'm hearing from you that is probably uh, most reassuring for someone listening and saying, but you just don't get it, is it's normal to feel you just don't get it. And it's normal to be blind in these, in the system that uh, exists outside of us in the venture capital system, in the high growth uh, startup ecosystem, and in the system that we ourselves as leaders may have created. It's normal to be blind to different ways of operating. And that the, the most important thing is not to dismiss that they exist, but to try and come to that possible blindness with, with curiosity and with a willingness to get help. Yes. Yes. So this, this, this is sort of a, an interesting bridge into um, the, the next listener question, because it's, uh, it's not only leaders who might feel like, um, okay, you know, the, the way that we have operated needs to change. And, and maybe it was fun before because we were moving fast and now we have to operate differently. Um, but the next leader question is a, is a reflection or amusing on what it can feel like for members of the team who have been around since early days, your day one employees. Um, and we often hear, you know, uh, an expression or a complaint from folks who have been around for a while. And it sounds like it used to be fun here. It used to be fun. And now it's not. Now it's bureaucratic. Now there, now everything I have to do is, is, full of process. I have to go get 17 approvals before I can build something cool. It used to be fun here and now it's not. How would you respond to that? Um, how would you respond to that when you hear it in organizations? I would respond, you're right. Um, and why is that a problem? So uh, here's what I mean by that. Enjoyable things are enjoyable. That feels good. It feels good to do things that are fun. It feels good to uh, uh, to you know be able to move fast and break things. It feels good to like have every cool idea validated in some way, either by your manager or the market or whatever. Feels good to have big Christmas or holiday parties. It feels good to have a star chef cooking your meals and all that. It feels good. Of course, it feels good, but. Uh, I think ultimately what you have to understand or about yourself is, is feeling good the purpose of your life? And is feeling good the reason you're at work? If it is, and that's a totally valid thing, by the way, like a purely Epicurean sort of like, hey, I'm in, in, the, in a delight of the senses. I'd like to enjoy my work and I'd like to be able to go to a place where I'm having lots of fun. That is a very valid thing to want. But ultimately, when people do that, they end up in a bad place. And this is something, again, we've talked on the podcast a lot. Fun is great, but meaning's better. So um, each of us has certain needs and certain wants, and we're on this path, we're on this you know path of evolution. 
And in that path of evolution, we learn more about ourselves. We learn more about our world, the world around us. We learn more about the connection between the two. And at some point, most people want to get off that path because that path is painful and pain sucks. And why would you want to experience it? Good things feel good. You want more good feelings. And so you get off that path. But the people who stay on that path ultimately lead more fulfilling lives. They tend to lead longer lives. They tend to have better relationships. They tend to have more sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. And so if, if there's a hedonistic pursuit, and I'm not saying that everybody who wants to have fun at work is just a hedonist, but I'm saying if there's a hedonistic pursuit of pleasure in work, and there's been this unique point in time that has enabled that because you had an organization, I mean, Google's a great example of this. Google had a printing press for a business model, a, a commercial printing press for a business model, just printed money. And that enabled the 10%, you know, allocation of time and lots of side projects and moonshots. And the printing press just kept printing out money. And so you were able to just keep adding people and adding perks and feeling like, man, I'm a part of Google and it's just awesome. And we're a big, important company and we do big, important things. And then when that, when the music stops and a lot of chairs are removed, um, then what are you left with? You're left with feelings of disillusionment. You're left with all these articles in the press where people are starting to come out and say, actually, you know, I, I sort of liked working at Google or I liked working at Facebook, but I didn't really have a job. I didn't do any work that was deeply meaningful to me. I attended meetings all day long. I was on Zoom all day long. And so when the music stops, you're left with this thing of like, what did it all mean? And I, I just believe that work is a place that should have inherent meaning and add to your sense of your discovery of yourself and your purpose. And in that mode, in that lens, then the fact that work is no longer fun, which is very confusing, it was fun, now it's no longer fun, that confusion is great learning fodder. It's a great place to start learning about what really matters to you. And why does it matter to you? And what do you want your life to be? You know, at least right now, everybody listening to this podcast or reading this transcript or whatever is one day going to shuffle off this mortal coil. We have a limited time on earth. And what do you want that life to add up to? Um, and how you spend your time and attention, given that limited sort of window of, of our lives, matters it you know it matters like every little bit is building a habit every little bit is about helping another every little bit is about unleashing some potential in yourself and again i'm totally okay with the fact that somebody's like i don't give a shit about any of that jeff cool then don't give a shit about that but understand that a early workplace that has lots of cheap capital and is blowing lots of money on stuff that is relatively unproductive, but creates a lot of pleasurable experiences, a false sense of meaning, a false sense of connection, the, that environment is gone. Companies can't, the whole tech bubble, the tech industry, which is now very much a later stage moving into utility sort of industry, the um, 
the cheap capital, all these things, that's gone. And so what's happening is that the, um, the underlying environment that was creating the opportunity for that fund is gone. Uh, and therefore, the nature of the work has changed. And I still believe, believe passionately, that there's this opportunity for work to become this place of meaning, this place of unleashing potential, of discovering ourselves, discovering what really matters to us, discovering, uh, learning about the world, learning about the connection between us and that world. Work is a great place to do that. If managed well, has great feedback loops. It can teach you so much. It can identify confusion early. It can turn that confusion into clarity. You can be on this path of learning for the rest of your life. You can build incredible relationships. You can become, uh, you can gain mastery in things you care about. All of that is available. Um, and to me, that's just much more, that's fundamentally more meaningful than fun. And actually, it's more competitive. So what I hear you saying is um, for those who might be feeling, hey, I was operating in an environment where there was less expected of me, there were a lot of perks. I think what I hear you saying is the ecosystem that enabled that is sort of crumbling, right? The cheap capital that was one of the sort of the biggest inputs, the fuel of that um, party uh, is, is, is no longer there. And so that party is stopping. I wonder if there's another angle on this question that we could take, which is um, for companies going through the necessary transitions of maturation. Um, so from from early days uh, where there are fewer people, you know, maybe uh, decision making is faster because of that. Um, there's less sort of cross-functional collaboration because cross-functional is, you know, three people in a room or, you know, and all hands is a 10-person discussion to uh, to now having more of a clear direction, a market to serve, metrics to align on, different functions that need to be able to make trade-offs well together, uh, process to adhere to to ensure that those things are actually happening, you know, reporting required, all of the kinds of things that, that, that define sort of the later stages of maturity of an organization. I think that's the time where we hear a lot of early stage folks saying, hey, this feels different. I feel constrained in ways that are, um, uh, that are irritating to me, that feel like they don't enable me to do my best work. I'm curious on the conversation, what your feedback would be or what your suggestion would be. Yeah, again, um, that's right. So I keep coming back to this Amazon example, but if you, if you read um, the various books about Amazon, one of the things you discover is I think probably one of their best innovations was a way for at least the first 20 years of their life <clears throat> was to keep up speed of change um, and keep up flexibility and cut out bureaucracy and do all those things, despite the fact they were growing into a, a global behemoth. You know, their ideas like the two pizza rule or multi-threaded processes or all these different ways they thought about it. Bill Gates famously said when he signed the deal with IBM, uh, to license MS-DOS. He said, you know, these guys are a dinosaur. They can't dance. We always got to keep dancing. 
And for a long time, they did. Like, they did a lot of big pivots beyond just like the PC revolution into the internet revolution. It's big companies can manage themselves effectively to avoid the sort of bureaucratic sclerosis and avoiding the risk, you know, risk intolerance thing of larger companies. But ultimately, large companies, the bigger something gets, the more complex it gets. And the more complex it gets, the harder it is to manage and the harder it is to get people to work with each other. It may be that your path, your individual path is like, hey, listen, I just like the startup phase. And that's completely okay. You can continue to learn and evolve. I talk with founders all the time who have built great companies. And part of my conversation with them is, you're probably not the right CEO for the next stage. It's very rare to go from the ideator zero to one through the builder one to two, all the way through to the professional post-public manager who's trying to deal with a lot of complicated stakeholders, a lot of coordination, a lot of demands, and a ton of confusion. That, you know, rarely is one person able to do all those things. We tend to um, idolize the people who do, but in idolizing, you know, the, you know, Jeff Bezos's or the Steve Jobs or whatever, we miss the fact that for every one of them, there's thousands upon thousands who weren't able to do that. And so I think that rather than saying, hey, listen, I'd really like to be the next Steve Jobs if I'm a CEO or I want to be with this company forever if you're, you know, if you're an employee, you instead have to take a look at where am I going to be able to do my best work? Where am I going to be able to unleash my potential? And the stage of growth and early stage of growth may be the place, like successive jobs, where I'm unleashing my, uh, the stage of, at that stage of growth where I'm unleashing potential may be the right place for me. But I'm saying, so I just want to acknowledge that, but I'm saying something different, <clears throat> which is people have, people are confused because they had a way of doing things that way of doing things created an expectation. The expectation meets a different reality, either over time or suddenly. And then they become confused in that moment. Confusion is unpleasant. And they say, I'm not having a good time because now I can't just get my, you know, I can't get my travel expense report signed. I got to go through three levels or whatever. And in that moment, they say, forget it. I'm done. Maybe I'm going to stay here, but I'm going to quiet quit. I'm going to check out. Maybe I'm going to like, you know, uh, I'm going to actually stage a quiet insurrection. Too much bureaucracy. We're getting in the way. What I have found in those moments is there is a huge opportunity for people to figure out a better way to do things. And they won't do that. They won't help themselves and help the company when they're in that state of like, wow, this is super unpleasant. Those people are bullshit. Everybody else is doing this to me. No, you are contributing. You are a contributor to the system, which is starting to run you. That theme we've explored again and again. You aren't standing outside the system of the company. You're a part of it. Doesn't matter whether you're, uh, whether you're an employee or you're the leader of it. You're the CEO. You're a part of it. And you're helping to create that system 
that is now starting to run you. And in that moment, you can synthesize that confusion. You can synthesize that 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 is what's happening. And there are things you can do about it. And before you come to the conclusion or the certainty that other people are doing this stuff to you and that you, in fact, are now locked in this prison, I believe it would be a far more productive use of your time to discover what you are missing and figure out how to change the system productively working with others. I think that is a far better response to confusion, to move to that clarity than it is to get caught in the like, man, this place is bureaucratic. That just sucks. Places get bureaucratic because people allow them to get bureaucratic, just to be clear. There is an incentive for bureaucracy as things get larger because there's more to lose. And frankly, the people who can lose those things, they care about them just as much as you care about your thing. The person who's hired to ensure that there's no fraud, waste, or abuse in purchasing has every bit as valid a role that you do as the person who's developing software. You may perceive them as bureaucratic and standing in your way, but if they enable a contract to be signed that bankrupts the company, you don't get to create software. So we're all in this boat together. We all share the same goal of making it better. And we all can take individual and personal responsibility in that to synthesize our confusion and say, okay, what do I do about it? Where, what am I missing? And how do I work with others to make this better? What I appreciate about what you just did, Jeff, is so often um, in our podcast, we're talking to executive level leadership. But I think what you just did is you said, okay, for anyone in an organization who is feeling that pang of annoyance at what they perceive as being unnecessary bureaucracy, that there's an opportunity, no matter where you sit, to take responsibility. And that responsibility starts by asking, okay, I'm annoyed at this. I probably think somebody else is an idiot for making me do it, but what could I be missing? And it's an opportunity to better understand the goal of maybe the new process that's in place and to realize, hey, I get the goal. It makes sense to me. But the way that this process has been put in place doesn't. And so rather than complaining about it, I can contribute to making it better, especially if I'm in an organization where that kind of contribution is welcome. Yes. And by the way, that doesn't look if if you believe that you've Woke, woken up one day and, and gotten into a bureaucratic dystopia and you're furious about it, you can still look for other employment. You can still do other things. You can still change anything if you're the, the leader. But in the meantime, how are you going to spend your time? How are you going to spend your attention? Are you going to spend your attention being consumed by this confusion, turning into certainty, preventing yourself from learning, presenting, preventing yourself from improving, taking the precious time you have here on earth and burning it with waste? Or are you going to use that to try to make things better while you keep your options open? I'm not saying it's an either or. I'm just saying like getting sucked into that confusion and believing everybody else is at fault is a path through it. Yeah. Jeff, you've, uh, in, I, I feel in this conversation like you've given um, some, some tough love, but also with some compassion and understanding. And I just want to call that out. I think that's um, something that's so core to who you are and, and seeing it on display um, as, I, as I do my best to bring listener questions and listener voices to the table, I think is really valuable. So thank you for that.
Of course. Thank you. All right. I think that's it for us today, unless there's anything else you want to share. No, I just hope everybody has a great week. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you.